0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon by sometime in September, we don't know an exact date, but 52 heads of African states will be on their way to Beijing for the Triennial Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, otherwise known as FOCAC. For those of you who don't follow these kinds of things very carefully, basically this is the uh, the China-Africa mega summit, and it is a huge deal that happens every three years. It didn't start out such a big deal, but it has become Really, really important. And it's important for so many different reasons. Number one, it really charts the direction of where China-Africa relations are going, in particular, from the Chinese perspective, because this, while it's called a China-Africa summit, at the end of the day, it's more of a China summit. And secondly, it really kind of gives us an indication of how much money are the Chinese going to lay out. What's been interesting is that over the past, say, three summits, the numbers that the Chinese are doling out in financial packages has just keeps going up. Last time, it was $60 billion, and everybody wants to wonder... Well, where will that end? And is it healthy? So, Kobus, FOCAC is something of a, of a real, you know, very, very important event. You and I are going to be helping to train journalists, and in your capacity at the South African Institute of International Affairs, you are consulting with your clients and partners about what's going on. So why don't you give us a little bit of a background on FOCAC and where, how we got to where we are today?
1: cax started in 2000 um, and it's it happens every three years and it tends to to bounce back and forth between being hosted in Beijing and then being hosted in African countries so it was in Johannesburg in 2015 and it will be in Beijing in September this year um, and it's the preeminent forum for for China to meet with African leaders and for the the discussion of an announcement of of, um new new initiatives between China and Africa so uh, it started off very much focused on on economic exchange and since it's since it's gone on it kept growing and growing in terms of scope so in 2015 you saw a lot of peacekeeping, um, and, uh, you, you know, anti-piracy and so on, other initiatives also being being discussed and being announced, um, and in, including a, a large amount of money being given to peacekeeping under the auspices of the African Union. Um, so what I think everyone is waiting to see, you know, A, as you mentioned, how, how much money is going to be promised this time, and B... Um, you know, kind of how wide the scope of the relationship is going is to be and what are the influence of an entrenched, empowered um, Xi Jinping is going to be. Um, I think this is the first time of the first Folk Act summit after the suspension of Xi Jinping's term limits. Um, so he is really in a very, very powerful position at the moment. And, you know, I think it is going to be interesting to see how that reflects in FOCAC.
0: Okay, so what we're going to do for today's show is is kind of re- run through a lot of the key issues that may or should be on the agenda in Beijing for the FOCAC Summit. And the reason why we're doing this is because as part of our relationship, that is the China-Africa Project's relationship with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Vitz University, uh, we have been commissioned to prepare a white paper to help train Chinese and African journalists on how to cover FOCAC. And so we thought instead of Kobus and I just hashing out what the issues are going to be included in that white paper, we thought, hey, let's do it on the show. And basically we're going to run through the key issues. It will eventually show up this summer in this white paper that we will, of course – Share with all of you, uh, but we have so many different topics to go through. We can't include everything in the white paper, so we're going to kind of pick what we think are the best. And for those of you who are regular listeners to the program, we do a show like this at the end of every year called the uh, China Africa Year in Review and Preview, where basically Cobus and I each take three or four issues. And we either we have to defend them, uh, present them and disagree or agree with the other as to whether or not those are the key issues. And we're going to use that same format for the program today. So, Kobus, let's start with you. What do you think? And we're not going to do this in any particular order. So tell me an issue that you think either should be on the agenda or will be on the agenda or in some ways will influence the agenda at FOCAC coming up in September that you think we should include in our white paper.
1: This one, I am pretty sure, will not only be on the agenda, but will essentially be almost the entire agenda. Or like, will will, will you know? It will sit half on half of the agenda. Essentially, that is Belt and Road Initiative. Um, all indications from Chinese uh, officials that I've spoken with, um, and all kind of indications of of where focus is, is going, indicates that Belt and Road is going to be massive. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, for, for those who haven't been following these issues very closely, um, the Belt and Road Initiative is this massive infrastructure rollout that China is doing, essentially connecting uh, Beijing to Europe um, over land and over sea um, through two routes. Um, the over route connects to Africa, so it, it connects to Kenya and then to Egypt. Um, but. The Belt and Road has also become this, this jewel in the crown of Xi Jinping's foreign policy and his, his international development um, planning. So everything is essentially running through a Belt and Road uh, filter now. And the indications that I've seen has been that, you know, officially the, the two points on the map of the official Belt and Road routes, the, the two African points on the map are Kenya and Egypt. But already we've seen that Ethiopia, essentially a lot of Ethiopian development is, is, is being seen through the folds of Belton Road. And there's indications that the belt and road scheme is going to be widened in africa there's already discussions about ways of pulling south africa into the belt and road you know scheme there there's even discussions about ways of pulling nigeria into belt and road which i have no idea how that works but you know i think i think it's going to be a, a massive theme and it's going to be this kind of overarching theme of the summit
0: i think it's i, I agree i think this is going to be the most important filter that every decision for FOCAC will pass through. I mean, it's that important. You cannot overstate the significance of Belt and Road. And for those of you who are not up to speed on what Belt and Road is, it's called One Belt, One Road. You can look it up under Belt and Road Initiative, BRI. Uh, But if you are a student of what China is doing anywhere in the world, uh, particularly in the developing South, then you have to understand what Belt and Road is. And it goes back to our conversation, Cobus, about how sophisticated African policymakers are towards China. We've talked for a long time how the Chinese have a policy now for each African country that's becoming increasingly refined. But do African countries have their own China policy? And bringing up Belt and Road is so important because it will help you better understand where you fit in the prioritization of Chinese foreign policy. So those countries along the Indian Ocean on the eastern coast leading up into the Suez Canal and the Red Sea in that area there are going to figure and do very, very well. Those countries who are more inland, uh, maybe not. But I think at that time, you know, as we're trying to understand what the priorities are in Beijing, Belt and Road is definitely a very, very good indicator on how to do that. So let's talk about We'll stay with the themes and the thematics of it all because I think just as much as Belt and Road will guide a lot of the decisions in Chinese prioritization for for FOCAC, uh, I think Donald Trump is going to play a very important role. Um, And I think China's emergence as a counterweight to the United States, it will not be necessarily overt in the FOCAC discussions, but it will be present there. And I think this is going – this is really the – how Africa in so many ways will help the Chinese because it offers the Chinese the opportunity to do things that they can't do in or won't do in other parts of the world, such as peacekeeping, a lot of their humanitarian development that they can't do in Asia because it's too contentious, but it allows them to project this, um, this sense of internationalization and openness that the United States certainly is not doing right now. And so I think Donald Trump will be present in the in the hall there and how Xi Jinping will try to present himself as an alternative to the increasingly isolationist American foreign policy. What's your thought about the role that the United States may play in terms of guiding the attitude and the spirit of the discussions.
1: Oh, I so agree. The, you know, I have many thoughts about this. Um, I, I recently discussed this with a with a, a foreign policy expert at a conference, um, and and he was saying, oh, it's it's very interesting. You know, the with with belt with the Belt and Road Initiative, China is essentially re, you know, moving again into a. As, you know, using the the Indian Ocean as a kind of a sphere of influence, while leaving the Atlantic Ocean to the U.S., um, which I think is a you know it's, it's a very shorthand way of talking about it, but it is an interesting. It provides an interesting lens to look at the role that the Indian Ocean is going to play, because of course, you know, the with with the Belt and Road, that is a, a, a way for for China to. To engage on the one side of the Indian Ocean with with places like Indonesia and, and Australia, and on the other side of the Indian Ocean with places like Kenya, um, and you know, obviously, India is, is is a is a world power that's extremely nervous about this. But I think in, you know, it, uh, the, the story that lies at the, at the heart of this is exactly anxieties about U.S. influence and the way that U.S. influence is changing. The, the militarization of U.S. presence in Africa is one issue that I know is, is, raises concerns. And then the, the uh, President Trump pulling out of the Iran deal, I think, really kind of created a moment where there is this crisis of trust, uh, about the U.S., you know, so even if the U.S. promises something now, they might well pull out of it in a few years. Um, and so it, it creates this narrative of China as, A, as you said, more global, more interested in other countries, and B, in a weird way, more trustworthy, which is a, which is a weird place to find ourselves. You know, the 21st century is very interesting.
0: Well, in 2018, let's consider that the United States is going to strip Rwanda of its uh, duty-free access into the US market because of a dispute over uh, used clothing. Secondhand clothes, like like it's secondhand crazy. clothes. It is. And but we're talking about the symbolism here because obviously the the value of secondhand clothes is tiny in comparison to the overall trade volume between the United States and Africa, but You know, this is an important issue. More importantly, South African steel will now have a 25% tariff on it and aluminum products as well coming into the United States. And I think the symbolism of China saying our markets are more open to you than the United States, we are investing more money in Africa than the United States, and our trade volumes are four to five times that of the United States does present a very interesting counter-narrative to the soft power message that the United States has been promoting for a very long time. I mean, it was only a couple months ago that former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was warning African countries about once again becoming too close to the Chinese. And I think that argument becomes increasingly difficult to put forward when you have the Chinese really laying out a much more expansive agenda in terms of trade and economic engagement than what the Americans are doing. So so I think Donald Trump will be in the room, the Americans will be in the room, even though it will not be explicit, but it will be very, very interesting to see what the attitude of both the African participants, as well as the Chinese are, in relation to where they are going to invest their limited foreign policy capital. So, Kobus, let's go to point number two for you. What is the second point that you think should or will be on the agenda in Beijing at FOCAC?
1: This one I also think will be on the agenda rather than should be on the agenda, um, although I do think it should also be on the agenda. Um, but it is the issue of industrialization. Um, so, you know, obviously, for, for the originally, the when when the China Africa relationship exploded originally in the two thousands, the it was very resource focused, um, and since then, China has, you know, it, it still is very active in extractive industries, but it's also very active in construction, um, and infrastructure provision, as we've discussed many times. Um, I think we are now moving in the direction where. Africa is lobbying very hard for for China to to play an active role in industrializing Africa. And China has to a certain extent responded to that. So when China was the head of the G20 in 2016, um, one of its flagship programs was an African industrialization plan. Um, And, you know, it was the first time that the G20 had really Had really focused on Africa in in a lot of detail. Um, it was the first time that the G20 had been pushed, you know, by China to to really you know, set aside whole chunks of its thinking about, to, to concentrate on Africa. In 2017, when Germany took over the G20, um, it also launched an African industrialization plan. Um, and so it was interesting that, you know, it seems that China, in that kind of way, set an agenda or made it possible for the G20 to focus on this issue. Um, since then, i think chinese companies have, have provided a, a lot of actual on the ground industrialization i mean there's a lot more uh, you know i was in i was in the the south african port city of port elizabeth earlier this week um, and we had drove past massive chinese car factories um, and they are you know force or the first automotive works the massive huge kind of car assembly plants um, and you are seeing more assembly and and i think assembly and and, and low level production and Africa is really lobbying for more of that. So I think that there's going to be – that's probably going to be quite a strong narrative at FOCAC this year.
0: I'm going to agree and disagree with you. I'm going to agree that there's going to be more industrialization. I don't think it will be Africa. I think it's going to be very, very country-specific. Light manufacturing will go more and more to Ethiopia. Heavy industry may go to South Africa, as you talked about. First Automotive Works, uh, BAIC, these other Chinese state-owned auto majors are really investing heavily into South Africa. There's a new auto plant that's opening up in Cameroon as well. Uh, Solar, I'm sorry, solar, but uh, hybrid cars production is going to happen in Morocco from a Chinese state-owned enterprise as well. But it's going to be very, very specific. Uh, Mali, Chad, those countries, I don't think they're going to get much industrialization. That, the other point that I think should be made is what Irene Yuan Sun, who we had on, she wrote the book about uh, Chinese manufacturing in Africa. Uh, it just came out earlier this year. And she talked about how it's this small to medium-sized enterprises. So we've talked only about up until now the massive state-owned enterprises like the auto companies, but so much of the manufacturing may happen at the flip-flop level. You know, she talked about in Nigeria of a small factory that produces flip-flops for just pennies of margin, but yet it works, and that may actually increase as well only as long as there's duty-free access into the U.S. and European markets from Africa. So that may change if the politics in the U.S. and Europe change, which as we've seen in the U.S., everything is up for grabs right now. So there are a couple variables on there, and I just wanted to refine the point, at least how I see it, that it may not be a pan-Africa type of thing, but it may be very, very country-specific.
1: Yes, um, and, and I think it, it depends a lot on the the specific kind of regulatory situation in, in your specific African country, um, you know, speaking with Chinese officials, like I have heard a lot of complaints about a place like South Africa, for example, which has very like quite complicated local labor law um, and you know very specific and and pointed kind of rules about how many local and particularly local black people need to be employed uh, at which levels it's a whole story so Chinese that kind of quite quite you know kind of assertive regulatory uh, environment tends to cause some unhappiness with with Chinese investors and and they tend to in you know kind of contrast that with what they call the business friendly attitudes in East Africa particularly in Kenya and Ethiopia so so you know kind of it'll be very interesting to see which specific African countries get what
0: but let's remember that African countries are not competing just with other African countries for these investment deals They're competing with Vietnam, Cambodia, South America. I mean, it is, you know, everybody's vying for this manufacturing that the Chinese are now starting to offshore more and more. The other thing that's challenging manufacturing, which may accelerate in the next three years between this FOCAC and the next FOCAC, is the rise of automation here in China. More and more factories are being computerized. Artificial intelligence, machine learning is getting into the production system much more. So it may not actually even be necessary to offshore the production to places like Africa or Vietnam if it can be done here without humans or a lot fewer humans along the way. So it's really a race against time. And I'm not sure, based on what you've said, Kobus, that a lot of African economic policymakers understand that they have to make the most investment-friendly environments in order to attract the Chinese or else those Chinese investors will turn to uh, Mexico – Vietnam, Cambodia, all those different countries that are also vying for it. Do you get the sense that they understand that this is a competition?
1: I think they do understand that, but I think they, they frequently have limited maneuverability because those kind of Kind of um, trade-offs, you know, the 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 classic Asian development trade-off, which is like, okay, you're going to be making super crap wages, you're going to essentially be almost be slave labor, but hang on, you know, kind of, you know, if if you do this for a few decades, then we'll all be rich and then it will be a developed country. That kind of Asian development calculus is hard to sell politically in Africa because people come from such a history of exploitation, Um, you know. So so wages have, you know, low wages are not are not new in Africa. And so they're very difficult to sell. And I think that is actually a a big problem.
0: Okay. Uh, Let's continue on with our agenda. Point number four for me, and this really in some way should be point number one in the priorities. I doubt it's actually going to be referenced explicitly, but it should be. And boy, that is the issue of debt. I would say the past 12 to 18 months, we've seen an increase in awareness of the issues of the surging levels Of debt in Africa, particularly in places like Ethiopia and Kenya, which have taken on enormous amounts of Chinese loans. There was a great graphic that I posted on my LinkedIn page earlier this week uh, about uh, the amount of debt that the Kenyans have taken on from the Chinese, five to six times that of anywhere else. Now, there's two ways to look at the amount of debt. You can look at it one way, which is positive, that people are borrowing from the Chinese because it's really the opportunity of a lifetime to get this kind of money at these kind of rates, even though in many instances, the Chinese rates are not that competitive, but the Chinese offer a package of services that nobody else can provide. So you get the financing, you get the, the 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 construction companies. In some cases, you get the labor, and you get this kind of turnkey operation that will then, presto, magic, you get a bridge, you get a, a highway, you get a railway, you get a port. No one else really offers that kind of comprehensive package, but at the same time, the worrying levels of debt are bringing back flashbacks to the 90s and the 80s when African debt was crushing the economies, making it impossible to do anything other than repay them. And eventually it had to be eliminated in terms of people wrote off billions of dollars in debt. Now, we got an indication just recently about how China may behave if, in fact, these African countries who have taken on a lot of debt can't repay them. Uh, one of the uh, one of the, the highlights of President... Mnangagwa. Mnangagwa, sorry. That one I never have gotten well, you know. <laughs> uh, but one of the highlights of, of the president's trip was that he uh, had uh, a lot of debt, uh, you know, written off by the Chinese. The Zimbabwe debt was taken away. And that was, I think, a very, very good indication of how the Chinese may, in fact, deal with some of the debt levels, because really at the end of the day, while the debt levels are high for African countries, they're not significant for the Chinese. Uh, This is the second largest economy in the world. So really, the the numbers are in the billions, but they're the low billions. This isn't going to bankrupt the Chinese if... Kenya goes, you know, you know, falters on its debt, uh, but it is very, very, very important for the Kenyans. So this question of debt, Kobus, what's your take on it in terms of you know the financial package that will eventually come out? That's going to be the headline of Focac. How much did the Chinese give? More than sixty billion? Less than sixty billion? But that sixty billion is not a grant. It's not them giving money. It's them, in many ways, loaning it through concessional loans, low interest loans, all various forms of loans and uh we should be concerned i think but at the end of the day what's your thought on this
1: yes at least 35 35- if I remember correctly, I think roughly about thirty-five million or thirty-five billion of that sixty billion was in the form of concessional loans, um, and very little of it was in the form of grants. Um, the rest was mostly in, in different kinds of institutional support. Um, so, yeah, I mean that is that is uh, such a big issue. I also had it on my list. the um, the The case study that is really sent. Kind of reverberations right through Africa was the the situation in Sri Lanka where Sri Lanka couldn't repay a loan on a, on a big port, and then essentially the, they lost control of their port like the the chinese company the a Chinese company came in and essentially took over the workings of the port and it what was a, a Sri Lankan kind of national asset turned into essentially a Chinese privatized you know kind of asset you know, on, on Sri Lankan soil. Um, and so so that, I mean, the, you, you mentioned the writing off of loans. I think there's a bunch of African loans will probably be written off. But, uh, you know, I don't think China is really in the market of... of Positioning itself as someone who lends and then just writes off loans. No, um, and no. so I think we're gonna. It's going to be very interesting the first time there's a, a real default coming up, and then to see whether there is any kind of sovereignty loss happening in the same time. Because if there is, then that changes the China Africa politics significantly, um, and it's gonna it's gonna lead to some kind of kind of national nationalist kind of backlash panic, you know, in Africa, which is which is going to be very interesting.
0: So a couple countries or a few countries to watch in this space Angola has taken on somewhere I think north of 25 billion dollars of Chinese loans certainly Kenya is in that space as well Ghana is also very very heavily in debt to the Chinese and Uganda as well so those Zambia four countries well. and Zambia as well that's correct and a lot of that is against natural resources so in, in the future and the fate of these economies is tied to the commodity price and the commodity markets so it's, it's very, very risky. Um, as you, I, I do agree with you that the Chinese are not going to write off a, a lot of this debt. There's a possibility that they might. But the Sri Lanka case, it kind of bugs me a little bit because people often bring that one out as an example. And the argument that I have with people about this is that nobody forced the Sri Lankans to get into this deal. And this is talking about national agency. And We talk about agency a lot on this program. The, the fact is that they went into this deal and they had to put some collateral up, just like anybody does. I have a mortgage on my house. If I don't pay that mortgage, well, guess what? The bank comes and takes my house. I don't necessarily think that what the Chinese did in Sri Lanka is morally wrong. No one forced no. them the, to – this was not a, a, you know, a gunpoint colonial type of deal. The Sri Lankans didn't have to take this type of loan and they didn't have to put the port up as collateral. But since they couldn't Mm. pay back the debt, it only seems reasonable that the Chinese get something for it. I mean, doesn't that make just sense – I, yeah i'm yeah. just I'm confused why people yeah. are so outraged over this when in fact a lot of us have mortgages and that's the way that capital markets work
1: yes definitely no i hundred percent agree with you i think it's i think the uh, i I wonder even if it is really i mean I, i'm sure some a lot of people are outraged by it um but oh, a lot of people uh, are
0: yeah, but, but no, you know no,
1: kind of is. i think I think also in Africa it's just it is uh, also just concern you know about uh, kind of, kind of concern about what that will what that will mean. Actually, in real life, you know, kind of if that situation were to occur and then also how it would play out politically, domestically, um, which I think, you know, I can imagine it would play out badly.
0: Okay. well, we're running out of time. So why don't you just quickly do a lightning round of two or three other points that you think should or will be included on the agenda before we go?
1: The, actually, there's for me. There's actually only one big one, um, and that is going to be the role of the AU, um, the African Union. The African Union has been pushing to take on a, a different role than it has. Paul Kagame, who's the, the president of Rwanda, is is also the this year the the head of the AU, um, and he has been pushing a, a set of reforms which would essentially kill Focag like, as we know it. Like he suggested that instead of having all these like you know many many ministers going to meet China there should be a, a smaller delegation you know a selected delegation empowered to speak for the whole continent that is one of the reforms that he's suggesting um, also the AU was pushing for a, a kind of an overseeing role where they could, you know, where they could um, have a voice in in all the different particular kind of deals being, you know, being negotiated between China and individual African countries to say to have a say in whether this will help Africa you know, in, to integrate continentally, which is, of course, one of their big goals. And so they are coming um, from, this comes in the background of the recent signing of the, the Continental Free Trade Agreement, um, which is which has turned Africa into one of the, the world's largest free trade zones. Um, so all of this, Africa is moving towards greater integration, and, and they, they have to because, at the moment, intra-Africa trade is very, very low. Um, so it's about 15% of all African trade is within Africa. And they're trying to move it up because that is the one the one uh, really proven way of, of developing the, the continent's entire economy. So the African Union is pushing to get more control and more of a say. And China has so far not been amenable to this at all they're not particularly interested in having the au take that role and i can well imagine that big powerful african economies like egypt like nigeria like south africa probably won't be particularly interested in that either i think they they would very well like the au to stay in its corner and for them to to make bilateral deals the way they'd like to so you know kind of so so that's going to be very interesting
0: yeah i didn't have that one on my list that's very interesting I'll, i'll definitely keep that in mind uh, let me run through a couple issues and, and I'll get your take on it. I think we're going to see a greater emphasis on the internationalization of the UN that more and more of the Chinese financing packages into Africa will be done in yuan so as to avoid the currency conversions into the dollar, particularly in moving away from buying oil in places like Angola in yuan. This is something very interesting to watch with respect to the Iranian sanctions, that the Iranians will continue to sell a lot of their oil to the Chinese, thereby circumscribing or you know, getting away from the, the U.S. sanctions, but they're going to be selling it in yuan. And that trend will, will, I think, continue into Africa a lot more. And so let's keep an eye out on the FOCAC package, the financial package, and see how much of it is done in yuan as opposed to dollars. Uh, I also think we're going to see a greater emphasis on humanitarian uh, objectives in, in FOCAC. Uh, remember that just this year, the Chinese announced a new foreign aid agency. Up until now, foreign aid had been dispersed through the Commerce Ministry, but now it's being done through a dedicated foreign aid agency, like DFID in the UK or uh, USAID in in the United States. So we may actually see this as the coming out party for this new Chinese foreign aid. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more emphasis on students as well. Uh, China now accepts more African students than any other country in the world. It's a foreign policy that's working. It's a soft power initiative, a public diplomacy uh, initiative. You see here in the streets of Shanghai and in Beijing, lots of young African students, and it's very, very exciting. So maybe part of the FOCAC package might be an academic exchange, kind of stepping that up more. Maybe an expansion of the Confucius Institutes in Africa might also be uh, on order as well. And then uh, very quickly, I think we're going to see a much more focused Financial aid package rather than spreading the money out across the continent, I think we're going to see it concentrated on Belt and Road countries. Uh, maybe on some of the industrialized countries in Africa, and on strategically important countries. So this means that landlocked countries that don't have a lot of resources and are not as geopolitically and geostrategically important uh, may in fact suffer, and that too may, may may be one of the filters. Okay, final words from you on either my comments or what you think is going to be coming ahead uh, in FOCAC, and uh, just what we should be thinking about between now and September.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I think I think definitely, uh, for me, the the, the biggest one the the one that I definitely think will be on the agenda um, the one that of of the ones that you mentioned is um, is u n internationalization i think that 's definitely that's definitely going to be a big issue. Um, and of course, it it, it figures into the, the wide logic of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a different form of globalization You know that is not dominated by by traditional 20th century Western institutions. Um, so I think increasingly the Global South is asking this question of like, so why is all oil, why are all, all oil transactions taking place in dollar? Like, why is that the global rule? Um, and, you know, so I think increasingly, it, like China is providing a kind of a space where that, those kind of conversations can happen. Um, I think um in relation to to the uh, human humanitarian issues, I agree with you, and it's going to be very interesting to see how exactly that's going to play out. Because so far, you know, China has been playing um, playing an interesting kind of game in this issue around this issue in China, in the sense in Africa, in the sense that they tended to respond to crises like the you know the the war in in the in. The, uh, in South Sudan um, and occasionally getting involved in trying to to mediate there like in south sudan but but generally you know they have not been. Uh, they're not, they've not been assigning blame to anyone. You know, they try to, to deal with crises as they come up, but they haven't been trying to say, okay, this government needs to change, or this
0: government needs to be, you know... These... Oh, you're never going to see that, though. Oh, no, 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 I, no
1: I also no. don't think that you're going to see is it,
0: but... too confrontational. No, I yeah, agree with I you, but... That, that violates the the non-interference kind of thing. But thinking.
1: at the same time, like, like you know, China now has a base on the continent. It is generally interested in doing more humanitarian issues. So there's a, there's a limited scope there where you can be involved in that space in Africa and at some stage not become politically involved. You know, even if you are resisting it with all your might, frequently great powers that are involved in African conflicts end up being pulled into a side anyway. Um, It's very, very difficult to, to maintain this kind of like lofty angel you know, kind of medical teams, you know, a role that, that China's been trying to play so far. So if you look at a, you know, at a very complicated situation, like in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, where, where Joseph Kabila is trying to push for additional t- uh, presidential terms and, and so on and so on, it becomes a very, very difficult line to walk. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether they can.
0: You know, what's funny, you and I, on we didn't talk about for over the past half hour, not once, did wildlife come up? And in our last Focac show, wildlife was quite important. I mean, obviously, the ivory issue was big. And, and, and that's both, I think, worrisome in one sense because I think there is this sense that, you know, China outlawed the, the ivory sale domestically here here in the PRC. So I get the sense that a lot of people think, well, you know what, take that one off the agenda. Everything's good. We're done. The elephants are safe. Let's move on to the next thing. And the fact is, though, that a lot of the elephant ivory trafficking and pangolin trafficking is happening through Vietnam and through the southern borders. And, you know, China's borders are very, very porous when, you know, when there's money involved. And so wildlife may be on there. So I'll put that down as an honorable mention, but I just thought it was interesting that it didn't come up on yours or mine, our top four or five list.
1: Yes. Another one related one that didn't come up, which I think might well come up on the actual agenda, is phishing. Uh, because china has been so z- overzealous in, in fishing around around african waters the
0: distant fleet yeah, yeah the distant fleet so uh, as you can see the, the 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 list of issues is very very long this is potentially going to be the most interesting folkek that we have seen in you know the past say 9 9 years but now we're getting to some very very interesting topics i think it's going to be fascinating to see what's in and what's out and what is just hanging in the hall Donald Trump will be looming there. Xi Jinping will be looming there and guiding the discussions in so many ways. So I think that'll be very interesting. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Cobus and I are going to be writing a white paper that will kind of take some of these issues, consolidate them, make it easy to read in about four or five pages uh, as a helpful guide for journalists. But we're going to distribute it to everybody. That will come out in the late summer, uh, probably sometime around August, just before the September summit. So we'll bring that And then uh, we always get an email saying, why did we say that only 52 countries are joining? And And people say, don't you know there are 54 countries in Africa? Well, the only two countries that will not be joining are those two that still recognize Taiwan. They are not invited to FOCAC. Um, That is Lesotho and Swaziland, correct?
1: No, Swaziland and Burkina Faso.
0: Uh, Kobus and I will be working on the white paper for the next few weeks and months, and it'll be out. And uh, we can't wait to to discuss this. And of course, we want to hear from you. What do you think should be on the Focac Agenda. Uh, we have so many different ways for you to kind of share with us. Uh, LinkedIn is a great way. Kobus is ramping up his LinkedIn page. Mine is up and running. You can find both of us there. Facebook, Twitter, all of the different dots and Ws. Uh, we'll have the addresses at the end of the show. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And of course, email as well. Email addresses are uh, all over our website and in the show notes of this uh, of this podcast. So... Reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. So for for this edition of the China in Africa podcast, I'm Eric Olander for Kobus and Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinski. Or Eric at E.O.Lander. and be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.